turn over to John chapter 14 with me this morning. John chapter 14. We'll read verses 8 through 14 together. John 14, verses 8 through 14. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does His works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do, because I go to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, here is Jesus is yet again teaching his disciples about prayer, we are we pause to contemplate our own praying. Lord, I ask that you would work mightily in our hearts today. You would grant us great conviction of what it is accomplished by your will through the earnest praying of your children. Lord, I Thank you for the instructions that your word gives, for the corrections that are offered, not only to people like Philip, but to us as well, for we fall into the same situations. Thank you, Jesus, for your compassion and grace, the way in which you teach us and are so patient with us. I pray that we would be attentive to you today, that we would learn, and from the things that we learn, that we would be diligent to apply the things that we've learned, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Well, we return to our gospel harmony this morning. Last time we were here in John 14, we noted that this is at the beginning of what we remember as Jesus' farewell discourse. The gospel of John recounts an extended dialogue between Jesus and his disciples through several chapters here, starting in chapter 14, that the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, do not include in their accounts. These words were spoken either while still up in the upper room after having enjoyed the Passover and Jesus makes that last supper, which is in another sense the first supper, right? Setting down the pattern that we still even enjoyed and celebrated today. Jesus doing with his disciples on that evening. It's possible that these discussions at least partially happened up there in the upper room. Perhaps the rest of it or majority of it even happened while they were journeying from the upper room to the Garden of Gethsemane. So just to remember where we are in Jesus' ministry, we're here on the eve of his arrest, the betrayal by Judas, his abandonment by the rest of the disciples. And Jesus has some words for these men. He has some final instructions. He's preparing them for the days ahead. We see such tenderness and compassion in Jesus' words. He exhorts his men 
don't let your hearts be troubled. We talked about that last time. That's the first seven verses of this chapter. And we talked about how Jesus was giving them some encouragements. He told them, you can trust me. I'm going to bring you home to be where I am. And he tells them, I'm everything that you need. I am the way, the truth, and the life. We pick up on this discussion now starting in verse 8 this morning. Philip has a request of Jesus. He says to Jesus, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. Now, the request, as we'll see together, is misdirected. But before we criticize Philip too harshly, we have to admit that we too make wrongful requests, don't we? I'm thankful that the Lord provides help for us, just as he provided help to Philip on that day by redirecting requests. Redirecting requests. Sometimes we ask for the wrong things, and that needs to be corrected, and we need to be led to know what it is we ought to ask for. We can also err, though, by asking for something that might be good, but asking for it in the wrong way. That also needs to be corrected. A governing official, a boss, a parent, might not grant the request that's made of them for any number of reasons, but certainly, too, might figure prominently at the top of the list. A citizen or an employee or a child might get the answer no because they asked for the wrong thing. That might be one reason why you're told no. Or a second reason is because you asked in the wrong way. You might ask for the right thing, but in the wrong manner and receive a no as well. There might be a whole list of other reasons why we might receive a no, but certainly at least those two are there. And this morning we're going to walk through John 14, 8 through 14, and learn from how Jesus redirects Philip's request. Philip says, show us the Father, it'll be enough for us. Jesus is going to compassionately, patiently, mercifully, graciously redirect Philip's request. We're going to consider three moments in this interaction this morning. Three moments I want you to write down. First of all, a call full of misunderstanding. We're going to first look at together a call full of misunderstanding. Well, then secondly, consider a correction that's full of compassion. A correction that's full of compassion. And third, a commission that's full of promise. A commission that's full of promise. Let's first of all consider a call full of misunderstanding. You see, the requests that are made by us say a lot about us. We see something about what Philip desires in this request. Jesus had just said he's going to prepare a place for his disciples in his father's house. And that Jesus was going there. And that the way to his father's house was himself. He says, you don't have to worry about directions on how to get there. I am the way, guys. Follow me. Know me. You have nothing to fear in finding the way because I'm the way. Jesus then remarks, if you had known this, you'd know the father also. From, From now on, you know him and you've seen him. Now, as soon as Jesus says this, Philip says, Uh, Yeah, yeah, Lord, show us the Father. Lord, show us the Father. That would be enough for us. Philip asks here for direct access to God the Father. He is requesting an immediate display of God the Father himself. We must admit there can be truly no greater experience than seeing God as he is in all of his glory and majesty. And while this request fails um, a few levels, I want to make note that the request itself is not without precedent. This is what Moses asked for too, isn't it? Exodus 33, 
Moses longs to see God. And God tells Moses, you don't know what you're asking for here, buddy. You know that no man can see me and live. But this is what I'll do for you, Moses. I'll put you in the cleft of the rock. I'll shield you from the, the outright, utter display of my glory. And I will pass by you. And after I pass by, I'll allow you to have a glimpse after I have already passed by. Philip, like Moses, fails to appreciate two things in the request. First of all, he fails to recognize his own sinfulness, his own inability to approach the holiness of God. And secondly, he fails to appreciate the full-on weightiness of God's glory and how that would just literally blow us away. But as we'll see in a moment, Philip's request also fails to take into account something that he was given that Moses was not. Philip's request fails to recognize that there's something that Philip has had the unique privilege of having and seeing that Moses did not. But may I say, before we get to that, let me ask the question. If you could make any request, and you were assured that you would be granted that one thing, what would it be? Certainly, we've all come across at some point, time, or place, either a book or a movie, in which some sort of genie and a magical lamp is present. And if you're anything like me, in those moments, you've certainly thought about the question, what would I wish for? If I had three wishes, what would they be? What would I ask for? Well, let me just boil that down to one. If you had one request, which you could ask, and you would absolutely be given it, what would it be? What would be the one thing you long for more than anything else? You see, when you start to answer that question, you start to get at the heart of what's really your passion. What is your life all about? What are you willing to live and die for? What is the purpose for life? While Philip's request has to be corrected here by Jesus, we must at least recognize that the desire to see God and to enjoy His presence is a good one. Philip is not corrected for wanting to see God. Note that. Jesus doesn't say, oh, wait, hold on, buddy. No, I'm never going to let you see God. That's not Jesus' response. This request is a good one in that sense. He wants to see God. He's not corrected for wanting to see God. It's his failure to see God right then that he's admonished for. More about that in a moment. We're told there's coming a day when all of God's children will be granted this most supreme privilege when we are given resurrected bodies and we're gathered around the throne. I talked about this somewhat in Sunday school this morning, and Randy mentioned it here at the beginning of worship as well. What many theologians refer to as the beatific vision. The beatific vision. The most supreme, most glorious, most beautiful vision that could ever be given. Have any of you ever been to the Grand Canyon before? I have not. I've only seen pictures, but I've been told that pictures don't do its service at all. There's something breathtaking about observing the Grand Canyon, its grandeur, its the massive nature of it. Anything that you might see or might have seen throughout your life will be nothing in comparison with the vision of God. 1 John 3, 2, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when He appears we'll be like Him. Because we will see Him just as He is. 1 Corinthians 13.12 Now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. 
Now I know in part, then I will know fully just as I have been fully known. What one thing might you ask for? And be able to say, with that granted, it would be enough for you. (laughs) Give me this and that would be enough. I would be utterly content forever. You see, when you really start to think about that question, you realize that asking for houses and cars and money and possessions and all this other junk, what is that even? It pales in comparison. You see, Philip has some problems in the request. But at least at the heart of the desire, a desire to see God. There's something good about that. Philip's misunderstanding, though, is important for us to grapple with. Because what we ask for says much about us. It doesn't only say, when we ask for something, it not only is a recognition of our desires, a depiction of what it is that we want, but it also says much about what we know and what we believe and what we think we need. Right? Answering that question, if there is one thing you could have, what would it be? And when you answer that question, you're going to instantly come, come in contact with what I desperately think I need the most. Requests expose understanding or misunderstanding. They expose belief and unbelief. When someone comes to our building looking to settle a speeding ticket while received here at Oak Ridge North, I know there's a misunderstanding. I know that they want the building next door, not ours. Even with our steeple, for some reason they still come thinking that we are City Hall at times. I know there's a misunderstanding. They've misunderstood our role in this community. Should someone come here with with a confession, asking me to absolve them of their sin, I know there's a problem. They've confused my role with the role of Jesus Christ, who alone can forgive sins. Should someone request that I give them a million dollars, I know there's a misunderstanding. I don't have that sort of money. But we can say on the flip side, going to a millionaire asking him for 50 bucks would almost be an insult to him, right? Don't you know what I'm capable of? Philip says, give us a vision of the Father, Jesus. That will be enough for us. Sufficient to the moment would be a viewing of God the Father. What does he mean by enough? That would be enough. That would be enough for us, Jesus. Well, considering the context in which Jesus is trying to calm their fears, he says, you know, let your hearts not be troubled. Perhaps what Philip is saying is, any amount of fear or hesitation or trepidation that we're experiencing at the thought of you departing away from us, going away from us, will be settled here, Jesus. If you do one thing, just let us have a glimpse of the Father. Give us a single glimpse of the Father and all of our fear, all of our troubles, it will all vanish. It will all be gone. We'll be set with that, Jesus. Perhaps we get a further understanding of Philip's epistemology here, his belief regarding what he knows and how he knows it. As the phrase goes, seeing is believing. And for many empiricists who just depend upon their five senses to prove whether or not something is true or not, seeing something like this would be quite a sight. Philip explains that he would need nothing more than the sight of God the Father. This would be sufficient proof and assurance for his heart. Let me ask you this. What requests, when you make a request, what does it say about what you believe? Jesus is going to mine this a little bit for Philip. He's going to say, I'm concerned about your request because it's indicating to me unbelief in you. 
What do our requests indicate about what we believe? And what do our requests indicate about what is sufficient proof or evidence for us to believe something? Have you ever yourself or heard someone else say, well, I'd believe in God if he you know, brought a lightning bolt and struck that tree right now at this second. You know, that kind of idea. What is sufficient proof? What is enough? It's interesting because it seems that quite often when people put those sorts of tests and fleeces out for God, it's never enough. Think about Gideon himself. What did he do? Well, here's my fleece, Lord. And after it's done, well, here's another fleece, Lord, right? It's dew on the ground and dry on the fleece and now wet on the fleece and dry on the ground. You see, it, it continues. Oh, I need another proof. I need another proof. By the way, don't go to Gideon uh, and that whole example as a means by which we ought to go about our relationship with the Lord as well. There, again, is an example of the tremendous compassion and mercy of God that he would at all go along with those tests. Philip's call was full of confusion. There was desire there. There was misunderstanding there. There was some unbelief mixed in there. So Jesus meets it with, point number two, a correction full of compassion. A correction full of compassion. How does Jesus answer our requests? Here we have a great example. Here's how Jesus answers Philip's request. First of all, we see Jesus' consistency. He bears long. He's patient and long-suffering with Philip. His immediate response to Philip is, have we been together so long and you don't get this? What, what's been going on over these last three years, buddy? How, how do you not get this? How, how could you ask for that? Because your question is indicating to me that there's been a whole lot of misspent time here. I've been with you this long. There's a tinge of sadness in that explanation from Jesus. It's one thing for Jesus' enemies to not get who Jesus is. See John 10. But here's one of Jesus' own disciples asking a question which exposes a failure to come to a proper conclusion about who Jesus is. Jesus looks personally at Philip. Haven't we been together long enough for this to have become obvious to you, Philip? The one who sees me sees the Father. Why are you asking to see the Father? You're seeing me. And if you see me, you're seeing the Father. He said, for the first time that Philip came to know Jesus, he instantly, John 1, instantly comes to recognize him as the Messiah. And the Messiah is here. And yet here, after three, year, three plus years of being with Jesus, he's now still failing to recognize that the Father was in Jesus. Here's yet another proof that merely being in good company and listening to good teaching, I mean, he had the best company by Jesus. He had the best teaching, perfect teaching. He saw good works, good company, good teaching, good works, does not in itself produce understanding. There he is, misunderstanding. Spiritual sight needed to be granted to Philip here. Here Jesus offers a correction. Jesus' correction. He exposes Philip's request as misdirected. How can you ask for such a thing, Philip? It's revealing to me, Philip, that you have failed to truly see me as I am. Right there in front of Philip was the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. He is the image of the invisible God. 
Jesus himself is God's gracious self-disclosure. The word made flesh. God has definitively, visibly manifested himself to man in the person of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Understand this. Jesus is not merely a manifestation of God. Jesus is God manifest. Jesus is not merely a manifestation of God. He is God manifest. There's a note of astonishment in this exchange. Has Philip been listening and watching this whole time? Where have you been, Philip, over the last three years? What further proof do you need? You say, that would be enough? Has this not been enough? Three years of watching me? Listening to me? Philip's question indicates unbelief. Jesus says to him, Do you not believe I in the Father and the Father in me? Do you not believe I in the Father and the Father in me? If you're going to try to visit a man, you might try his house because that's where he dwells. If you wanted to go visit a king, you might go to his palace or his castle because that's where he dwells. Jesus says, the Father dwells in the Son, and the Son dwells in the Father. This mutual indwelling is a way to explain complete unity between God the Son and God the Father. Jesus said in John 10, verse 30, I and the Father are one. Now, this does not remove all distinction between the Father and the Son. The Son, while ontologically or in essence equal to the Father, functions, though, in a subordinate way. Jesus says often, throughout his ministry, over and over and over again, I only do what my Father tells me to do. I speak the words that the Father gives me to speak. All of Jesus' ministry, though, was declaring this fact. All his words, all his works were a manifestation of the Father. It was the Father speaking through Jesus. It was the Father working his works through Jesus. Everything Jesus is rests upon this eternal, inter-Trinitarian relationship between the Father, the Holy Spirit, and Himself. I have to admit that you bring up a word like Trinity and you instantly enter into a whole lot of mystery. The Trinity goes beyond our ability to understand. That shouldn't be so surprising to us, though. We're the ones created. He's the creator. He's the uncreated one. We're the ones made. God's the maker. We're finite. He's infinite. There'll be a good many things that we cannot understand. But that does not mean that that statement is irrational. There's nothing self-contradictory about the statement that Jesus makes. What we would say is that it is super rational. Biblical testimony regarding God being three in one is not against reason. It's just above and beyond our ability to reason. But because of God's triunity, to deny the Son is to deny the Father. That's why people who say they trust in God, they believe in God, they follow God, but they reject Jesus, that is not the case. If you reject the Son, then you've also rejected the Father. If someone says they love God, but they don't love Jesus, they're a liar. For Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is God manifest to us. That's why he's astonished by Philip's request. Jesus says, to see me is to see the Father. Note the difference. Philip had something that Moses didn't. Philip had walked day in and day out with God in the flesh. Moses got a glimpse of God's backside after he had passed by him, being hidden in the cleft of the rock. Philip 
at a day-in, day-out relationship with God in the flesh. So Jesus gives a command. He calls Philip to trust him. He says, believe me. He says, don't you believe this? And then he says, believe me. I in the Father and the Father in me. He calls his disciples to believe his claims. Now, Jesus showed himself utterly trustworthy, right? We all deal with trust issues because we've all been burnt at times, right? We've been lied to. We've been gullible at times. We've had difficulties at times. And so sometimes we have a hard time trusting people. Jesus is preeminently and perfectly trustable, for he never lies. And he brings to pass all that he purposes. Jesus had shown himself utterly trustworthy. And so he says, believe my own testimony. Believe me. Jesus' words are different from everyone else's. He spoke as one having authority, unlike the scribes and Pharisees, Matthew 7. He alone had the words of life. His teaching was not his own, but that which was the teaching of him who sent him, John 7. We're told that people standing by said, never was there a man who taught like this man. His words were distinct. Jesus describes his words here as the Father fulfilling his works. Isn't that interesting? Look at verse 10. The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. The words that I say are the Father doing his works. My words are his works. A.W. Pink explains, Jesus' words were works, for they were words of power. He spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. Think of all the examples. Peace be still to the waves and everything becomes still. He shouted out, Lazarus, come forth, and the dead comes forth. Jesus commands Philip, believe me. Believe me. Believe what I told you. Believe my testimony. But then we see Jesus' compassion. Because he provides super abundant proof. He says, if my words aren't enough, then look at my works. He's calling his disciples to believe. And he reminds them that their faith is grounded in something sure. The Christian faith is not a leap into the dark, but being given eyes to see the light that God has given. Jesus spoke as no one else did. He performed miraculous signs, which utterly backed up the unique claims that he made. He was born, he lived, he died, and rose again, all in specific fulfillment of prophecy. This man was utterly unique. He was unlike anyone else they had ever met. Jesus says, If for some reason you have difficulty believing only my words, then look at my works. It's kind of a sad moment in this dialogue. He's again back in John chapter 10 when Jesus is dialoguing with people who were enemies of Jesus. He tells them the same thing. He tells his enemies, if you won't believe my words, then at least look at the works. Look at what I've done. If we have to go to that place, then we'll go there. And now he's here talking to Philip. If you guys won't believe my words, then consider my works. Certainly that could be, have a twofold meaning. Jesus might be saying, if you're having a hard time believing my words, then consider my works. My works show me to be divinely powerful. And since that demonstrates my supernatural power, then believe my words. 
Believe my words because you've seen me do supernatural things. Things that only God can do. Believe my words because I've done things that only God can do. That could be one way this is taken. And certainly is true as far as it goes. But I believe that Jesus means something even more than that. Jesus is saying this. If you're having a hard time with my words, then look to my works because my works are also declaring a message about me. My works themselves are saying something about me. The miracles that I perform function as messages as well. They're signs to be listened to and heeded. In other words, my miracles are nonverbal declarations about who I am. It's not just I did some magic trick and as a result of that believe what I say. It's that my works themselves are divinely powerful. And they declare who I am. And they show what I've come to do. Jesus says, my words and works have their origin in the Father. Jesus said and did what His Father told Him to do. He came to fulfill His Father's will. We learn of the Father through the words and work of His Son. Sadly and scarily sometimes, we learn much about parents through children, don't we? It's always the most scary with my own family. Oh, you've learned too much about me through my own children, right? We have this tendency. And because on some level our children are a manifestation of their parents. Now, because of the way that sin has wrecked havoc on the world, and we are dealing with sinful parents and sinful children, that it's not just a direct correlation like anything that my child is a direct representation of me. But there is a sense in which my four children are representations of me. They say something about me. But then when we consider the sinless Son of God, He is a perfect representation of the Father. John 1.18 No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. Colossians 1.15 declares that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Hebrews 1.3 He is the radiance of His glory. Listen, the exact representation of His nature. And upholds all things by the word of his power. This is why Jesus can say to Philip, you want to see the Father? You're looking at him. The Father is in me. And I am in the Father. I wasn't merely performing acts of power to astonish people, although his miracles were breathtaking and astonishing and amazing. The, sign, the things that I did were to function as signs pointing people to God. And God's plan to rescue and redeem a fallen people. This is why John takes time with these. He even tells us this is his purpose in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that believing you may have life in his name. John says, the reason why I've recounted the miracles that Jesus did in this book, in the Gospel of John, is you'd read them and consider them and come to an acknowledgement of the fact that Jesus is the Son of God and that we can have life in His name. His miracles were tremendous displays of power, yes, but they also themselves were a nonverbal message to all who were around Him. J.C. Ryle says, He that casts his soul on Christ has an almighty friend. A friend who is one with the Father, equal with him in all things, and very God. 
Now, having corrected the matter of Philip's request, now Jesus teaches something about the manner of requests. How do we go about making requests? He tells Philip, your request is misdirected. You are already looking at the Father, for the Father is in me. But from now on, Jesus explains that those believing in him will manifest their belief. They will manifest their faith in him by offering prayers in his name. Let me say that again. From now on, those who believe in Jesus will manifest that belief, will manifest that faith by offering up prayers in Jesus' name. And those prayers, Jesus says, will be heard by Jesus and they'll be answered by Jesus. Again, a unique description to the deity of Jesus. Who else do we pray to but God alone? The commission. There's a commission here full of promise. What task have we been given? And how does that task inform what we ask for, our requests? Well, first of all, let's consider the commission. Jesus says something very interesting here. He speaks about his disciples doing the works that he has done and doing works greater than those which he has done. Hmm. Kind of a head scratcher. He says, those believing in me will do the works that I have done and works greater than these. Or some of the works that Jesus did. He showed himself to be Lord over nature. He turned water into wine. He fed 5,000. That's just men. So it's probably more like 20,000 with women and children. People with a few loaves and fish. And then he did it again with the 4,000 men. He walked on water. He told the sea to stop its churning. He showed his power over disease and disabilities. He made the lame to walk. He caused the blind to see. He caused the deaf to hear. He healed the sick. He showed his power over sin, for he forgave sinners. And rightly, those listening in said, that's blasphemy, they said. That was wrong, but they were right on what they were, how they got there, because only God can forgive sins. That was right. It wasn't blasphemy because Jesus is God. He raised the dead. He did battle with Satan and won. He caused, he cast out demons and caused them to flee. We learn that the kingdom is found in Jesus himself. So what does it mean for Jesus' disciples to do Jesus' works and greater works than those? Well, some have posited that Jesus' promise here refers simply to the apostolic age. The event that we read about in Acts. And this is as far as the promise is meant to carry. Jesus says, you will do things that I have done. Certainly the works that he's just talking about, the works that he's saying, if you have trouble with my words, look to my works. Well, what are the works he's referring to? Well, certainly it's his miraculous works that he's done. These that demonstrated proof of his divine person and mission. These miraculous acts are quite clearly seen. In gifts given to the apostles. They healed the sick. They casted out demons. They raised the dead. They were bitten by, by vipers and they lived. 
God bore these men witness both with signs and wonders, diverse miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit. See that in Hebrews 2, verse 4. But Jesus says, the one believing in me. It's a phrase which seems to me to embrace more than just those disciples of his standing there on that occasion. But would extend to all those who would believe in his name. I think the fulfillment of Jesus' promise is still unfolding today. Certainly it would include the events in the lifetime of the eyewitnesses of Jesus after his resurrection. But even to those who have not seen Jesus physically and yet believe. But here we come back to the question then. In what sense are we doing greater works than Jesus did? This seems strange to us. Could it be greater in number? I mean, certainly throughout the age of the church, there are many people... And if we combine together all the ministry of all those who follow Jesus over all the years, we could say that quantitatively there have been more works done by the collective church than by Jesus himself during a three to three and a half year of ministry. But there are better ways to say more works in Greek. The word here is greater. Could it be greater in the sense of more spectacular things? But how do you perform a greater miracle than creating bread from nothing and feeding 4,000 and 5,000? Or walking on water? Or, get this, even the apostles raised the dead, right? But did they raise someone dead who had been in the ground for four days? Remember when Jesus goes to get Lazarus? They, they find out that Lazarus is sick. He holds on for a little while longer, then comes to, to Mary and Martha. Remember, they're like, Jesus, if you had been here, you could have stopped Lazarus from dying. This is all Jesus says, I'm the resurrection of life. Just trust me and... It's one of those really interesting occasions because almost everywhere else in the Gospels, everybody takes Jesus literally and they never understand it spiritually. In this case, she goes, oh, I know you, you know, in the end, you're the resurrection. But Jesus is meaning literally there. He's saying, I'm the resurrection of life. I can raise the dead from the ground. Remember, he goes up to the tombstone, he says, roll away the, the stone. And they're like, but Lord, you know, in the King James, he stinketh. <laughs> he stinketh. I mean, he's been in there for four days. He's rotting. He's decomposing by now, Jesus. And Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. And out comes this man wrapped in linens, alive from the grave. Certainly, he doesn't mean that there's more spectacular things done. So in what way are Jesus' followers going to be made able to do greater acts? Come back to the question. Well, perhaps it's that they're greater in reception. Or, put in a different way, Greater in nature or type. If so, it would be like saying this. Jesus is saying, you've witnessed physical miracles and you're going to perform some. You've seen me do works and you're going to do my works. But there's greater works that you are going to fulfill. You're going to see more fruit of a greater type. You're going to see more fruit of a spiritual nature. You're going to see and witness hearers being granted spiritual hearing. The spiritually dead being granted spiritual life. Stony hearts being made hearts of flesh. Spiritually blind eyes being given spiritual sight. Spiritually lost souls being granted repentance and faith. Gifts of the Holy Spirit. What Jesus is saying is, due to what's about to happen, I'm about to go to the cross, I'm going to die, and I'm going to rise again. This is right on the horizon. It's a supreme revelation of my Father's and my glory. But through this event... And then by the subsequent granting of the Holy Spirit, you, my disciples, are now going to finally grasp this truth that you're still messing up on, Philip. You're still missing it, but you're going to get it. 
You're going to understand. There's going to be clarity on that side of my resurrection. And there's going to be not only works like what I have done performed by you, but there's going to be greater works than that. A new day was about to dawn. A new clarity was about to be given. And the signs and works that Jesus accomplished, which were still yet pointing forward to what Jesus was about to do, now on the other side of Jesus' victory, His crucifixion, His death, His resurrection, there would now be great power unleashed. You see, miracles performed by Jesus' followers had greater impact than those attending, for the Holy Spirit was working through the work combined with the message preached to bring large hosts of people to faith in the risen Christ. What greater work can be imagined than the conversion of a man's soul? Think about that for just a moment. I think we way downplay that. Think about the greatness of the miracle when someone who is hardened in their heart and dead to God is made alive before they hated God. And now they love Him. That's a miraculous change. It's the greatest miracle of all when God changes a cold, dead, unbelieving heart into a soft, pliable, believing one. A.W. Pink says, The preaching of a risen and exalted Savior, the proclaiming of the gospel to every creature, the turning of souls from darkness to light, and from the power of Satan to the service of the living God, the causing of heathen to demolish by their own hands the temples of idolatry, the building of the temple of living stones, of which Christ is both the foundation and the chief corner, and which far surpasses the temple of Jerusalem, these things were far greater than any interference with the course of nature's laws. You see, all the rest was to bear witness to Jesus, His sufficiency, that He is all we need. Let me put it real simply. Even raising a man from death, should he not have repentance and faith in Christ, he dies to go to the second death in hell. Even should you grant a dead man temporary life, it's nothing compared with him being converted and being granted eternal life. You see, acts done by the disciples following this climactic moment in history and powered by the Holy Spirit will be greater because God is granting His followers, these men, greater clarity that's now provided in the church age. This work that Jesus is continuing to work today through His bride, the church. Those who have been saved have been given the responsibility and privilege of telling others about our Savior and King, Jesus Christ. I think this is bears a similarity to what Jesus says when he talks about John the Baptist. He says, there's no one greater than him born among women. But he says, but the least in the kingdom is greater than him. What sense does that mean? I, I, I take that, that phrase in a similar way to this. John the Baptist was granted, granted greater privilege than anyone from the Old Covenant. He's the one there announcing the coming of the Lamb of God. There's the Lamb of God who comes away to take away the sin of the world. He baptized Jesus in the Jordan. He recognizes who Jesus is. He was granted a blessing and privilege that men in the Old Testament longed to see. There John the Baptist saw it, observed it, knew it. But Jesus says, even the least in the kingdom, those following these events are granted an even greater privilege than John. We have this tremendous privilege. We get to proclaim a crucified and risen Savior. Leon Morris says, what Jesus means, we may see in the narrative of Acts. 
Yes, there are a few miracles of healing, but the emphasis is on the mighty works of conversion. Listen, on the day of Pentecost alone, more believers were added to the little band of Jesus' followers than throughout Jesus' entire earthly ministry. There's a literal fulfillment here, even greater things than these. And that spread of the gospel would go far beyond the geographical area that Jesus was doing ministry in, to the far corners of the earth. It is nothing short of miraculous when God works through His church to bring sinners to repentance and faith. I think sometimes we forget about what a miracle that is. It's sad when we do. It's sad when we we stop contemplating what God saved us from and what He's granted us. And when we think about the conversion of others, and some of us know stories like this where you felt like that loved one, that family member, that neighbor, that friend, that co-worker, they're so hard to the things of God. And while you prayed earnestly for their salvation, there's sometimes moments in which you doubted, like, how is this person ever going to be changed? And then God came in and changed their heart. And caused by the miracle of regeneration to give them new life and new birth. May we never underplay that miracle. What is the basis for these greater works? Is it because the disciples are greater than Jesus? Certainly not. Jesus says, you're going to do these works and greater than these because, why? Because I'm going to the Father. He says, the reason you're going to be able to do these greater works is because of what's going on with me. These are my death, burial, resurrection, and ascension to the Father's right hand. There's going to be greater works than these demonstrated. Again, I think this is Jesus comforting troubled hearts. His departure would mean the furtherance of his kingdom, not the cessation of it. This is not a step backward, but a tremendous leap forward. He was going to the Father, which would mean the further spread of the gospel. During his earthly ministry, Jesus' words and works were confined primarily to the lost sheep of Israel. There are exceptions to that, but primarily he came preaching the gospel to the lost sheep of Israel. But now his words and work would spread through his disciples to lands far beyond the bounds of Israel. His departure... And his subsequent sending of the Holy Spirit would enable his followers to carry the good news of redemption to the far corners of the earth. Declaring that Jesus is victorious. Bringing God's reign to the hearts of thousands who have never known Jesus. and never knew Him while He was on the earth. The results of that are still being felt to this very day. This commission, though, is also attended with a promise. What's the promise? Answered prayer. Jesus has willed to accomplish His purposes through the earnest prayers of His followers. Just as we seek a means of communication with someone who might go away from us, we ask them for an address. Can I send you a letter? We hardly ever do letters anymore. Do you have an email address? Do you have a phone number? We want some sort of communication. Do you have a, can we text one another? As Pink says, true, he would be in heaven, Jesus would be in heaven, and they on earth, but prayer would remove all sense of distance. Prayer could bring them into his very presence at any time. Yes, prayer was all essential if they were to do these greater things. You see, the doing of these greater things is realized through and only through praying. It's our request laid before Jesus' feet that are the means to accomplishing the greater works which Jesus has willed to take place. We all know that. 
The most eloquent sermon doesn't change a man's heart if God doesn't change the heart. The Holy Spirit must attend those words. Then those words are imbued with power and true change can occur. Prayer is essential. I think it was David Platt that said something along these lines. Jesus has willed to work through willing intercessors to accomplish his purposes. Let me say it again. Jesus has willed to work through willing intercessors to accomplish his purposes. Jesus gives the promise two times. Whatever you might ask in my name, this I will do. If you might ask me anything in my name, I will do it. I also like that phrase. It reminds us that these greater works are not now all of a sudden, okay, that was Jesus' work and now this is the disciples' work. No, Jesus says, in prayer to me, bringing these requests to me, I will now do my work through you. It's still Jesus' work. Jesus is still accomplishing his work. His departure would by no means seal the end of prayer, but render possible its continuance in even wider conditions and effectiveness. So let me ask a couple of quick questions. What does it mean to pray in Jesus' name? He says here, you might ask in my name, I'll do it. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. What does it mean to pray in Jesus' name? Prayers offered to God, Jesus says, must be offered in my name. This is not merely a way to close a prayer like using the word sincerely at the end of a letter. Because whether or not you actually utter the words, we pray in Jesus' name or we pray in your name, this kind of phrase, whether or not you use that phrase or not, this is the only means by which prayer is acceptable to God the Father. Just as we have no access to the Father except through Jesus, who alone is the way, so our prayers have no power apart from them being offered in Jesus' name. So what does it mean to pray in Jesus' name? Well, at bare minimum, at least it means three things. First of all, we pray trusting in Jesus' death and resurrection. Prayer is founded in trust in Jesus' person and work. There is no other mediator There is no other avenue, no other way, no other road, no other path. We don't pray thinking God owes us something. We come humbly approaching God in the merits of not our own, but Jesus Christ. And acknowledge our dependence upon Him to supply all of our needs. So we don't make our appeal through priests. And we don't make our appeal through parents or pastors or saints or Mary. We offer our prayers unto the one and only God in the name of Jesus in Him alone. Because there is one and only one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. We pray as fully identified with Jesus. We ask by virtue of our union with Him. We plead with God the Father on the basis of the merits of His Son. We ask on Jesus' behalf before God the Father that He would act in mighty ways. This way, when men use another's name as the authority of their approach or the ground of their appeal, the one of whom the request is made looks beyond him who presented the petition to the one for whose sake he grants the request. The father looks past us to his son as the real one making the request. To make a request in Jesus' name is to make a request due to my union with him. 
And I pray knowing that God hears the cries of His Son. He loves His children. So it means we pray through our union with Jesus. That's what praying in Jesus' name means. It also means that we pray in accordance with Jesus' desires. We pray what Jesus would pray. True prayer is offered in accordance with what Jesus' name stands for. Praying in Jesus' name is praying as Jesus himself would pray. It means we ask for things in accordance with his nature, his perfections. If you think about it, if you do anything in someone else's name, but it's not something that other person would do, you're not doing it in their name, right? If somebody like, came and you know, punched Trino in the face, and they said, I did this in Jess's name, I'm like, I didn't call for that. That wasn't something done for me. I didn't ask for that. You see, to pray in Jesus' name means to pray and to promote His agenda. To take on what, what is Jesus' agenda? What does Jesus want to see happen? I want to pray for the things that Jesus would pray for. How do I know what Jesus would pray for? Well, praise the Lord, He's given us a book where we can learn all about what Jesus prayed for. What is it that pleases our Lord? A third thing, when we pray in Jesus' name, we pray knowing God's ability and power to grant anything. We pray knowing God's ability and power to grant anything. He uses the indefinite pronoun here, and it forces us to consider how wide this realm of request is. Let not our request be limited, please hear this, let not our request be limited by small thoughts of God. What is God able to do? I'm going to build on a comment that Randy made last week from Ephesians 3, verses 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Okay, so that those couple of verses tell us that God is able to do anything we can ask. The verse also tells us that God is able to do all that we ask. The verse also tells us that God is able to do all we can ask or think. The verse also tells us that God is able to do beyond all we could ask or think. It also says that God is able to do abundantly beyond all we could ask or think. And lastly, that He's able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we could ask or think. So now to pick up on Randy's comment. So certainly God can do what we ask. Right? Certainly God can do what we ask. I'm so thankful for Randy's sermon last week because it was a Great rebuke, even in my own life, to anemic prayers. Prayers that are lacking substance, lacking strong faith in God's ability to do whatever He wants. Thinking about His power, His greatness, His grandeur. I don't want to be found someone approaching a multi-billionaire asking for 50 bucks. He owns a cattle on a thousand hills. Everything is His. It's not a question of His ability. Don't allow your prayers to be small because of small thoughts of God. Correct small thoughts of God with appropriate thoughts of God. Thoughts that are appropriate to His grandness and His glory. Yes, we must guard against presumption. And yes, we must humbly receive whatever our God and His great wisdom is willed to do. But remember, He is willed to answer the prayers of His children. He's willed that. He tells us, I want to answer your request. Cry out to me. Cry out to me. I will answer. I will do it. Nothing's too difficult for him. Nothing stands between him accomplishing his purposes. So pray passionately, fervently, full of faith and trust that he is working 
for His glory and for our good. Another question. Will Jesus do anything we ask? It says anything, right? Anything, anything. Certainly here's an example of reading Scripture in light of Scripture. Jesus' name is not a magical mantra to get whatever you want. It's not like a blank check, you know. Oh, I, I want all of these ridiculous things. What this is, is a promise that any petition made in keeping with what Jesus is and what He desires, bent on magnifying God the Son and glorifying God the Father, will be granted. James 4.2 You don't have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives. You might spend it on your pleasures. There's at least a threefold check we can think about here. Number one, you might not have because you haven't asked at all. That's a problem. Number two, you might not have because you asked for the wrong thing. We already talked about it earlier. And the third thing that's brought up here is that you might not have because you ask with the wrong reason and with the wrong purpose. 1 John 5.14, this is the confidence which we have before him that if we ask anything, listen, according to his will, then he hears us. This is just like a father listening and giving to his son who asks. Jesus makes use of this in his Sermon on the Mountain, Matthew 7. He says, what man is there among you if his son asks him for a loaf of bread will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, you won't give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in Heaven give what is good to those who ask of Him? Love the, the lesser to greater, right? If you, as sinful parents and fathers won't do something mean-spirited to your child when they ask you for something good, how much more will your perfect Heavenly Father delight to give good gifts to His children? I like the way Calper said it very poetically. Listen to this. Not what I wish, but what I need. Oh, let Thy grace supply. The good unasked, in mercy grant. The ill, though asked, deny. Say it again. Not what I wish, but what I need. Oh, let thy grace supply. The good unasked, in mercy grant. The ill, though asked, deny. Why does Jesus answer our prayers? He tells us. Right in between both those promises. Ask anything in my name, I'll do it for you. Ask anything in my name, I'll do it for you. Right in between that, why? So that the Father might be glorified in the Son. Note, the Son's work to fulfill these prayers is ultimately for His Father's glory. Soli Deo Gloria is the answer and the emphasis of everything. To God alone be the glory. Carson said, during His ministry on earth, the Son's consistent aim, His achievement, was to bring glory to His Father. That was no less the Son's purpose in completing His mission by going to the cross, which is simultaneously the means by which the Son would be supremely glorified. Now, in the splendor of the Son's exaltation... The Son's purpose does not change. He enables His own to do greater things in order that He might bring glory to His Father. This is another reminder that our prayers are to be aimed at that glorious end, the proclamation of God's glory, the advancement of His name, the seeing of His majesty, the displaying of His perfections, his goodness, His graciousness, His mercy, His justice, making much of Him and His name. God the Father delights to answer these things. Jesus is 
waiting to answer these things. He's willing to answer these petitions. He's pleased to answer the prayers of His people who call out to Him in His name for the grandeur, the glory, the goodness of God are magnified in Jesus the Redeemer when His servants are empowered to do great works for Him. We're not saved by works, but having been saved by grace through faith alone, we're then marked by God to do works for His glory. And they're not just small little works because He wants to make a big name for Himself. So He gives great works, big works. And He calls us to pray earnestly that He would accomplish these things. Don't let your heart be troubled. Jesus' departure from this earth and His ascension to heaven has led to the spread of the gospel and the furtherance of the kingdom. He has greater works for His church to be involved in while He is preparing a place for us. There is a purpose to our present waiting. We're not here just twiddling our thumbs. We're to be engaged in earnest, soul-searching prayer, longing that Jesus bring to pass His purposes. But in order for all these greater works that He has for us to do to take place, we're to be engaged in prayers offered in Jesus' name, acknowledging Jesus' preeminence, aligned with Jesus' purpose, aimed at God's glory. Let's allow Jesus to direct both the matter, the words that we ask, the things that we ask for, and the manner, the way in which we ask for them. And thereby may we pursue great things for our great and glorious Savior and King Jesus. Let's pray together. Thank you, Father, for the joy of talking with you. We know it's only possible because you gave your Son on our behalf. He died as the substitute for sinners. Thank you, Jesus, that by your blood we are forgiven and are granted access are adopted into your family. Lord, I pray that we would not be hindered by low thoughts of you, that we would rightly recognize who you are, Jesus, and that we would make requests that are fitting your nature, your perfections, your character. May our prayers be earnest. May our prayers be true and real and transparent. Free us from complacent prayers. Free us from mindless repetitions. Cause us to contemplate that we're talking to You, the God of the universe, the King of all kings, and the Lord of all lords. And then to think that You listen to us, and You hear us, and You answer. May great things be done for Your great name's sake. We pray all this in Your name, Jesus. Amen.